Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's August 31st, 2018, which means we have almost, not quite survived the official summer season in Washington, D.C. We could actually go back and review all the news of the summer, but we don't have that much time. Uh, On Fridays, we have an unusual partnership between the Weekly Standard and Politico, and today uh, we're joined by, well, I'm joined by uh, Elena Schneider of uh, Politico. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it, Elena. Hey, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, you probably don't remember the first time that you and I spoke, but for for weird reasons, I do remember it. Um, I was uh, in an airport somewhere. I'm trying to reconstruct. I think it might have been San Francisco. And it was the the morning (laughs) after in Wisconsin, they lost a special, the the Republicans lost a special election. Mm -hmm. And you had called and we talked about how totally freaked out the Republicans were by losing that election. Yeah, that's right. And I think you gave me a pretty uh, poignant quote, which was, I think it was something to the effect of this race is like a lightning bolt through the Republican Party there in the state. Because I think it was. And um, yeah, I, I vividly remember that because that was such a scramble to make sure that we wrote about it because I think that it was it was a surprise to so many people that, uh, that you know, the margins on that race. Well, what, what I also was, since we're, we're, we're engaging in this sort of mutual admiration society here, um, I always think it's very, very difficult for people um, outside of a state to understand the dynamics of, of any particular state's, uh, uh, you know, political, uh, you know, politics. And, and as I recall, you immediately focused in on the one congressional race in Wisconsin that might possibly, maybe, I don't know, uh, might be in play, which is Glenn Grothman's seat here. And anytime, right. and, and and so I I have to say that, that at that point I thought, okay, this is interesting um, that someone actually understands the demographics of a specific congressional district <laughs> in the state of Wisconsin. I'm still willing to bet that Glenn Grothman, the Republican incumbent, will hold on to that seat because he's, and and I and I say this with all due respect. I may have said this to you that morning. That, that Glenn is basically a freak. He's he's he doesn't really have a life. He spends all of his time campaigning. He's not going to be caught sleeping no matter what. But who the hell knows what the political environment's going to be? Okay, so Elaine, I want to start off. Um, I don't know. You you heard uh, Chuck Todd yesterday. Uh, on, on his show say no journalist should uh, not show up for work today because he thinks this is the, of course, this is the last Friday, the last full day before Labor Day. And we know what Fridays are like in the Trump era. You expecting any big news, Bob Mueller, to drop anything? I think at this point, uh, we're all sort of on tender hooks here to wait and see what might happen. Um, but I certainly do not have a crystal ball into into Mueller's mind, much less uh, very many people in Washington have access to sort of what his uh, his planning might be. And that's why you show up and uh, hope that it's not a Friday where you want to get out of town. Yeah, see, that's that's the thing. It's like, oh, Dude, everybody is, is out of town. It's like we 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 no longer have any bandwidth to handle all of this, and no, nobody knows. We probably should repeat this on a daily basis. Nobody knows what Mueller is going to do. Nobody knows what he has. Exactly. Nobody knows what's in his. Nobody knows what's in his back pocket or in his safe or anything. But let's do talk about this one story. I know obviously uh, the the day's news is going to be dominated by uh, the McCain 
uh, ceremonies, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little while. But uh, uh, the big political story this morning, uh, this new uh, poll, this new Washington Post-ABC poll showing that uh, Trump's uh, disapproval rating is up to 60 percent and uh, just as significant, very clear majorities back the Mueller investigation and Jeff Sessions, which would uh, suggest that the, the number one, that uh, the president's campaign to discredit that investigation has uh, has not gotten traction. And number two, and number two, that, um, you know, perhaps this needle was moved a little bit by the the Manafort verdict and uh, and Michael Cohen's uh, plea deals. So give me your take about this poll and what it means, you know, basically on the weekend that we begin the sprint to the midterm elections. Well, look, any time that the president approval rating falls uh, below 50 percent, which obviously with this poll, we've reached a, a new low for the president on where his numbers stand, that that that's seriously concerning for every single member of Congress and every single senator who is preparing for reelection this cycle. Because traditionally, and again, historical precedent uh, certainly has been uh, has been reshaped in the last two years. But historical precedent says that that basically, if you're under fifty percent, then the party in power, heading into its first midterm year, usually loses uh, about forty seats. Uh, and that's a significant number and certainly enough to flip the majority here and enough to potentially um, give Democrats a, a real shot at a bringing up impeachment proceedings if they should choose to do that. So I think it has huge implications, obviously, for where the mood of the electorate is towards the president, but then also where they stand on, as you said, impeachment proceedings and their faith in in wanting um, Jeff Sessions to stay in the position that he's in, despite all sort of this rumblings of, of discontent about him that's been going on for months now. Um, so clearly the American people are in a different place than where the president is, or at least a significant mm-hmm. chunk of them. You know, uh, among the very, very strange storylines of, of the era that we're in right now, w- watching liberals rooting for Jeff Sessions. I mean, how bizarre, how bizarre is is that? You know, Sessions is really probably the Trumpiest, most far right member of the entire Trump cabinet. And yet somehow he's become, I don't know, like, don't touch Jeff Sessions. Uh, I also thought, by the way, it was, you know, well, there are so many stories that are, you know, undercovered because there's so much that's going on here. But I was I'm fascinated by the fact that the Donald Trump is, is apparently, you know, bending everyone's ear that he possibly can, making fun of Jeff Sessions Southern accent and the fact right, that he doesn't, the marbles and it speaks with marbles in his yeah, mouth. That's right. And that he doesn't have an Ivy League education. He just went to the University of Alabama. I mean, how elitist is that? I'm trying to imagine if Barack Obama, if if we had a report that Barack Obama was mocking someone for their accent and the fact that they didn't have a law degree from Harvard or Yale, you know, how hair on fire, you know, conservatives would be. So this this populist elitist thing is I did. I find it fascinating. Well, this administration has made strange bedfellows of all kinds of different people. And in part, I think people were excited about that. Look, I think that that's part of the reason why people voted for Trump is because they thought he would go in, shake it up, create new teams, <laughs> draw new lines, maybe force uh, some some deal making force some conversations that hadn't happened before because he was going to be sort of comfortable shaking things up. I don't think that they expected then their bedfellow to potentially be Jeff Sessions. <laughs> no. And but, I, you know, Look, I, I think that there there uh, there's some some good things they can take. You know, like uh, there's certainly some some elements to this that is shocking uh, and concerning for Democrats. 
But at the same time, um, look, Republicans are clearly he's done a pretty good job of communication, communicating his frustration to Republican senators. There's been some great political reporting about how these senators have sort of started to ratchet up their own pressure. So even mm-hmm. if it may not be working you know, with the American public, certainly the uh, the senators um, who who Trump has been in there all of their ears, you know, look, they they have already sort of started to signal that they that they aren't in, as supportive of Jeff Sessions as maybe they once were. Yeah, if if, if well, well, we'll see. He, I, I don't think he's going to do anything until after the general election. I mean, after the election. So then, go back That's to this right. Washington Post poll. Sixty-three uh, percent of Americans support Mueller's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Fifty-two percent say they support it strongly. Only twenty-nine percent oppose the probe. Um, the Manafort uh, numbers are also kind of interesting. You know, all the speculation that he might pardon uh, the former campaign chairman. Uh, poll finds that it would be a political landmine for the president. Two thirds of Americans oppose Trump pardoning Manafort. Fifty three percent strongly oppose it. Eighteen percent support a pardon. Eighteen percent. Now, that's the hardcore Devin Nunes gateway exactly. pundit crowd i, I suppose but uh well that's and the trump's pu- base that's the core of his base right there who that's who, the base of the base gonna, exactly yeah. but the public is squarely behind jeff sessions 64 percent do not think that trump should fire sessions so um really troubling numbers going into all of this you have been writing about now one of the questions that i have in the back of my mind that i wanted to talk to you about is you know with with all of these these numbers, I, I remember how bad Trump's numbers were before the 2016 election, and of course Democrats managed against all odds to blow it. And uh, one of the questions is, uh, it, you know, are, are are Democrats miscalculating how to run against Donald Trump? And the Florida election is fascinating as kind of a microcosm of, of what's happening. You have Republicans nominate the Trumpiest possible candidate, Ron DeSantis. And then the Democrats, rather than nominating the the centrist, moderate, uh, most electable candidate, Gwen Graham, they go with uh, they go with a candidate uh, who is, you know, b- quite significantly uh, p- progressive. So and, and in a lot of ways, maybe a preview of 2020. I mean, you know, what what it would look like if the Democrats say, OK, w- you know, we're going to go uh, hard left, Medicare for all, abolish ICE, uh, you know, $15 minimum wage. You do have a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren against Donald Trump, which is uh, n- not inspiring for many of us who are uh, center right. But give me your sense of what happened in Florida because you have been covering that race. Look, I don't think that anyone who's a centrist walked away from the Florida results feeling uh, feeling excited. Mm-hmm. This is not. This is certainly. This is this this. These results showed that both parties went to their corners. That being said, I think both sides would argue that that you know that it sort of reminds me actually of back in two thousand and ten um, when when uh, uh, or it, excuse me when Ted Cruz was running for the Senate and he was up against and I'm now blanking on this have to fact check me on who he was running mm-hmm. against was it um, it wasn't David Dewhurst was it but who the when he was sort of the Tea Party insurgent um, senator and he sort of made the argument basically that we need to put forward somebody that's going to get the right excited that's going to get conservatives excited and yeah. he was able to do that 
very effectively. And I think Democrats are sort of seeing, making the same argument here. And uh, Andrew Gillum, I think there's a lot of different factors that went into his success, in part just sort of the nitty gritty things that took down Hillary Clinton, where, you know, Gwen Graham decided to not spend as much in southern Florida because it was so expensive. She was up against all these self-funders who were just dumping money there. And her decision not to do that and and to assume that um, that all of the the guys, the male candidates, the three other male candidates were sort of beating that didn't end up happening. And so sort of her bottom fell out in South Florida and she wasn't able to hold it together. And, you know, Gillum was able to take advantage of a whole host of different things. I mean, he's, as you say, incredibly liberal, the most liberal of all the candidates who are running in that race, supports abolishing ICE, supports Medicare for all, uh, called for impeaching the president in December of 2017. So he's as, he's basically as left wing as you can get. And I think that he was able to not only, you know, he was able to build a coalition of obviously African-Americans and people of color, but also sort of those white Bernie progressives, young people, millennials, who um, who who want to see the party move to the left, and so a mix of building that coalition and then also getting some you know some real boons from Gwen Graham deciding to not air ads in South Florida, getting some help from George Soros and uh, Tom Steyer at the end, those two billionaires who were sort of able to help fund his campaign in the final stretch, and he was able to pull it off. And I think you're right in pointing out that. Everyone is going to be watching this race because of its implications for sort of a test test subject for what it'll mean for 2020. I mean, this is a cla- Florida is a classic battleground state, and we've got, as we say, the two poles of the party are going to be battling it out. And I think any presidential candidate who is looking to run in 2020 is going to watch what is happening yeah. in Florida. I, I had a chance to talk with uh, with with a Democratic operative, really from from Clinton World, who had a you know somewhat different take than I had on all of this. Said first of all, remember that uh, Andrew Gillum um, was a major Hillary supporter. I mean, a big time uh, surrogate right. for Hillary Clinton. He's now being you know characterized as a Bernieite because Bernie Sanders came in near near the end. But the Gillum was very very much part of the Clinton campaign. And number two. This kind of reminds me of you know how Trump won the primary. The other candidates, very well-funded Democratic candidates, uh, attacked Gwen Graham, pounded her, um, and they they've sort of you know engaged in you know mutual bloodshed. Uh, but nobody was really pounding him, so he was able to emerge as a as a much more acceptable alternative. But it is interesting how. In a state like Florida, which has no state income tax, that you have the leading candidate, the, I mean, the Democratic candidate talking about Medicare for all, which right. so given the nature of the electorate, you know, I mean, half of Wisconsin, you know, moves to Florida, you know, and, and for two <laughs> things, obviously, for for the weather and for the fact that there are no taxes. For the taxes, and, yeah. Uh, right. And low taxes. And, you know, the the, the question of, uh, you know, even if you don't like Ron DeSantis or you're concerned about all of that, um, I can certainly imagine what the, what the campaign would be. Now, Ron DeSantis uh, launches his general election campaign with the incredibly uh, inept comment about, uh, you know, not monkeying it up. How does that play among among voters? I, I heard an analyst, and I'm trying to remember the name, um, who made the point, look, uh, you know, the people on the outside may think it was stupid and may think it was a racist dog whistle. I don't know how else you interpret it, quite frankly. But the, the focus on that might lead to a backlash, that there are a lot of older white voters in Florida 
who are more likely to say, you know, I'm sick and tired of this kind of talk and might actually rally around DeSantis because of it. I, you know, I'm, I've lost the thread of what moves the needle <laughs> these days and particularly in Florida. Your thoughts? Well, look, I think that uh, Santa said it was inadvertent and that it was not meant to be that way. And and I think that whether or not it was intentional or inadvertent, as he says, the point is, is that it's an indication of how how intense and bitter this is probably going to turn out to be. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're right in pointing out this possibility that some people are going to be frustrated by what they see as an oversen- you know, overly sensitized Democratic party, party who's going to react to just everything. And I, look, I think whether or not that's a difference maker, whether or not independents care about that or one way, one way or the other, I, I think it maybe is a blip. It's something that people will talk about for a couple days, but I don't. I don't think it's going to necessarily decide people's vote, votes. The question is, does it persist, and does it continue to be a serious theme? And obviously, I think it's a, a sign of how 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 bitter and and intense it's going to be. But whether or not sort of those dog whistles persist will make an impact on whether or not it actually affects people. I think that if DeSantis decides to just sort of, you know, keep it more down the middle, then then I think that this is sort of going to be a blip on the radar here. Uh, but look, you're right. I think that whether or not people are turned off by it is totally possible. You know, both, I don't really going think, both ways. Sure. I, I don't know uh, Ron DeSantis well, except that he's uh, obviously prepared to do absolutely everything, including, you know, setting his own reputation on fire by running that uh, that parody like ad of himself, you know, reading the Donald Trump books. But in any case, uh, let's uh, let's move to uh, what people are going to be uh, thinking about over the weekend, which obviously is barbecues and getting out of town. But I but I meant the 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 ceremonies about J- John McCain. Um it's really an extraordinary week, Elena. When you think about all the, the uh, you know, the, you know, John McCain lying in state, uh, the the eulogies. This is the kind of this is the kind of funeral slash farewell usually reserved for presidents of the United States. I can't recall any other senators passing making this big a, you know, and 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 an, an impact. And really, it it was fascinating to me. You know, to watch Joe Biden up there, and of course we're going to see Barack Obama and, and George Bush eulogizing him. It it is a rather striking moment about you know sort of an alternative vision of what our politics could be like, g- given the moment that we've all been or the era that we've been living through uh, over the last uh, several years. I think no matter when John McCain uh, passed away, I think that there would have been a real. Uh, a real time in which the country devoted its thinking and attention to this incredible man who gave so much of his uh, of his life and 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 his energy to this country, not only obviously serving as a senator and as a presidential candidate, but obviously his time serving in 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 the military and being held hostage in Vietnam. And I think that no matter what period of time that his passing would have happened, we mm-hmm. would have all stopped and taken a moment to really reflect on how incredible of a leader he was. That being said, I think that the moment we're in, which it sounds like you were making this point of like it playing out in the contrast of, of president Trump. So dramatic. It's very dramatic. And I think that there's an even more of an urge for people, uh, for, 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 
exactly sort of the centrist people who maybe have disappointed by the results out of Florida who want to take stop and take stock of somebody who they saw as very much an independent voice, a maverick, somebody who wanted and strived for bipartisanship, who strived to get things done. That playing not only against the backdrop of President Trump, but also a Congress that's really been in gridlock for mm -hmm. a number of years now. And uh, and so I think that that contrast heightens the in heightens the tension and also makes it even more, I think, important for uh, an even more sort of dramatic. Uh, yeah. For, for for the country right now. I also think that there's a sense of loss that is not just the loss of John McCain, but it's the loss of that tradition. That as we watch and, and as we celebrate all of those values, you know, the courage, the patriotism, you know, the country before party uh, tradition that he rep represents, the recognition that he may be the last of his breed, that we're not seeing anyone like that. So as, as America kind of celebrates those particular values, you also have to come to grips with the fact that we have, we, we appear to be losing all of that. I do think it's going to be interesting to see whether there, whether he leaves behind sort of an inspiration to others to say, okay, how do I, you know, what is my legacy going to be? I, I can't help but notice that Ben Sass has been um, tweeting an awful lot about John McCain and about John McCain's values. Um, and whether this is going to be a signal for some of these guys to, you know, do you want to be, you know, do, do you want to be remembered like Henry Clay, John McCain, or do you want to be remembered as a, as a rubber stamp? Um, I asked you, but before we started this, what, what you're obsessed about, um, because that always makes for a good conversation. Let me tell you what I'm <laughs> obsessed about this morning. And I'm like obsessed about it five minutes before we started talking. And this is one of those things that, that is, you know, not important, but it will play an outsized role in the culture war, which makes me want to pound my head on the desk. I don't know whether you've read <laughs> about this, this upcoming uh, biopic about Neil Armstrong called First Man uh, apparently omits the American flag being planted on the moon. And the star, the, the Ryan Gosling, who plays Neil Armstrong, you know, defends this decision, saying, you know, that Armstrong's mission to the moon was, you know, a human achievement, not an American one. He said, I don't think that Neil viewed himself as an American hero. And the movie reflects Armstrong's humility, which is great. But it's like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I do. You know, Hollywood, you know, decides that they really sat around in a room and said, "Hey, let's actually omit something that actually happened because we want to make this other point, and we don't want, and so we're going to remove the American flag." You know how that is going to be weaponized. And how, what a distraction that is at the exact moment that I think Americans probably do deserve these moments of remembering American heroism when we all, you know, we're together with a common purpose. And it seems one of those gratuitous self-inflicted wounds that we are going to be talking about, you know, more than, say, something really, really important like the death toll in Puerto Rico or something like that. Right. Well, I, uh, I, I had missed that controversy, but I certainly will be watching the movie because strangely be enough, I have a family connection because Michael Collins, who was driving, uh, the spaceship who yeah. didn't actually get out at the moon is my grandmother's cousin. No um, kidding. So a, a little family connection there. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if he, he, he's got a, if I wonder if he's got thoughts on this, uh, that, um, that is, that is call, give him a call. <laughs> so what are you fat? What are you obsessed with this weekend? 
Well, this weekend, I'm obsessed with the close of the primary season. So we had Florida and Arizona on Tuesday. Those mark sort of the end of the big statewide primary contest. We've got a smattering of a few more coming up, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, in the next two weeks or so. But basically, the primaries are over. And that sort of puts me in the position of thinking about what are the kinds of candidates that both Republicans and Democrats have put forward? And do we see any trend lines? Do we see any evidence of sort of the party's direction? Who who seems to be having a little more sway with primary voters? And what's frustrating and drives me crazy as a reporter, because we always want to uh, neatly uh, write about things so that it makes sense and we can sort of, you know, say, okay, this is what's happening in the party. Instead, it's so much of a mixed bag. And and we've got examples and counterexamples um, up the wazoo in all kinds of states, House, Senate, go- gubernatorial, of just sort of the party making choices like Andrew Gillum mm-hmm. and choosing to really go progressive. And then seeing the counterexample out in uh, in Michigan where Abdul El-Sayed uh, was another sort of progressive Medicare for all, Bernie yeah, Sanders support blown candidate, out. Yeah. got totally blown out. And and they went with a much more traditional moderate uh, candidate out there. And, you know, and take the counterexample, too, of Martha McSally. And look, Martha McSally certainly was trying to hug very close to the president. So I'm not saying she was uh, putting distance between herself and the president. But look, she was definitely the most moderate of the of the three candidates who are running there. She was running against Kelly Ward, a former state senator, and of course, Joe Arpaio, the former Maricopa County sheriff who uh, was just pardoned by President Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, arguably they split that conservative vote. Maybe if it had been a head-to-head, it would have been closer. I would say, I, I would say they split the nut job vote. <laughs> I would say they, 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 split the, they split the fever swamp vote. Well, look, either way, McSally walked out of that and, and crushed it and was really able to um, set that primary behind her. So, you know, it's it's been a fascinating time to watch how um, both of these parties haven't actually really yielded an answer as to, or at least a resounding answer as to which direction the parties are headed in. And I think that they're both sort of grappling with different issues. Democrats are sort of being stressed in two directions. You know, do we go after moderate, independent voters who maybe don't like the president and really focus on the sort of suburban district that might go our way? Or do we go back and try and convince, you know, just make it a base turnout election and elect yeah. people like Andrew Gillum and, and get the, the the Democratic base fired up? And Republicans are having similar family, family arguments. So I think it's just, it's a testament. I think the primaries have just been this testament that we are, are going to keep having these arguments um, about, you know, and the parties are going to keep arguing about it all the way through 2020 because we don't have clear answers yet. Well, yeah, and in the family argument, at least on the Republican side, though, has been somewhat settled that uh, you have to be loyal to Donald Trump to at least get to a primary. Although, you know, with 60 percent disapproval of Trump, um, what it takes to win a primary may not be what it takes to win a general election. Elena, thank you so much for joining me. Elena Schneider from Politico. You can find her work online. Where do you think we think you're going to be spending most of your time, by the way? I mean, you, you you have to pick and choose now. Now, now you have a finite amount of time to it's, decide it's, which congressional races you, uh, you you dive into. It's totally true. So I'm heading to uh, New Hampshire on Monday to uh, close out the primary season uh, in New Hampshire's first district. But look, I'm going to be going to my home state of North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte. There's a fascinating open race there where Pittenger lost. Uh, the former congressman um, lost his primary in part because I think people were arguing he wasn't close enough to the president. And I'll be out in Texas. I'll be um, out in California. Look, I, uh, I'm i going to be racking up some frequent flyer miles this year. 
Well, good luck with that. So, Elena, thanks for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back. Man, you know what? We are going to take Monday off, but we'll be back on Tuesday and we'll do this all over again.